Welcome back to the What is Truth podcast. I am your resident philosopher, Travis Webb, and joining me as always is Pastor Sam. And don't forget, Travis is the great philosopher. I'm going to keep saying it until it sticks, so. (laughs) That's your matter of opinion. I'm just a guy in cowboy boots who likes to read books and drink tea. Hey, talking about drinking tea, I've got some good tea today, vanilla chai. Ooh, it it, it is good. What, What are you drinking today? Honestly, I forgot. I know it's a green tea. Strawberry sweetheart, I think, isn't it? Uh, maybe. Tastes kind of like strawberries. Yeah, so the uh, really good tea. But anyway, what, what are we talking about today? So today we're going to be going over our first actual philosophical work. And we're going to be starting at uh, what uh, is pretty much the foundation of Western philosophy. And we're going to be looking at Plato and his most famous work, The Republic. Right. I'm really excited to look at this because, uh, just as Travis mentioned, the idea of Western philosophy, it's uh, th- this is somewhat—well, it's not somewhat. It is foundational to Western philosophy, but Western philosophy—and this is the cool thing about this podcast—is that Western philosophy is a mix of Judeo-Christian value and Greek philosophers, really kind of in a, a, a melding of those two things is where we get this, this Western idea. Um, and— it, I, I just absolutely love that because I, I love Western uh, civilization. <laughs> um, I love the United States as it's the hallmark of Western civilization. And so these are important things to go over. And so we're going to be looking at the Republic specifically. Now, we, we looked at this and as we were both studying this idea, uh, and I think this is important to go over ahead of time, the Republic isn't really speaking of... A republic. <laughs> uh, no, the the republic that is shown, or I shouldn't even say the republic, the nation that is uh, described in this book is actually an aristocracy. Right. So, so why we, we kind of discovered this last week as we were uh, studying this, but but why do you think it's called the republic? Do you remember? Or? I do, but. Okay. Uh, or are we going to get to that later? Am I jumping way ahead? No, you're perfectly fine. Okay. Now, uh, uh, again, we're I am by no means a professional historian, so take this with a grain of salt. This is just my opinion as a guy that reads books and sits on Google most of the day. But uh, looking at the origin of the word republic, it comes from uh, Greek words meaning concerning and the people. So the way I take the title republic to mean is i see it as more of a mistranslation rather it should would be better titled concerning society right that's in in that makes a lot more sense when we stop and we actually think about uh kind of the content that's in the republic because i i'm sitting here studying the republic and the whole time i'm reading this i'm going like he's not talking about a republic at all he's talking about an aristocracy like this this doesn't make any sense and then we looked up the the etymology of the word and i mean Republic, and we're like, oh, yeah, that makes way, way more sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it it could be a mistranslation. It could be that was intentional. I don't know. I'm not a historian. That's just my personal view on it. Right, and I, and I think that does fit, but uh, should we uh, jump in? Uh, we should, but I think it'd be a little beneficial to uh, talk a little bit first about the author himself. Okay, so Plato... Um, now, not to be confused with the child play thing, Plato. 
Yeah, there's a T, not a D. Right. What? Uh, who is Plato? Um, and kind of, you know, what were? What's he about? So, uh, Plato uh, would have lived around uh, 2,500 years ago, around uh, uh, around four or 500 BC. I believe he wrote the Republic around 400 BC. But, uh, Plato was uh, the most prominent student of Socrates. Uh, Socrates is kind of the guy that started Western philosophy as we know it. His idea of dialogue, which is now called the Socratic method, is uh, what carried over into most of the Greek philosophers' ideas. Well, and so you bring up something really important when we look at this uh, idea of the Republic is, is what we're going to be going over today, and that's Socrates, because r- the Republic isn't just like a normal book that it's saying, okay, here's my ideas, here's my philosophy. This is actually a dialogue, and the main feature in the dialogue is, in fact, Socrates. Yes, so unlike uh, later philosophical works that we see in uh, Western philosophy, uh, Plato's works are written as dialogues. They're written as a story. It's not got much of a plot to it. It's basically a few guys got together and, decide, and decided to start talking about justice. But the main uh, interlocutor that we see, the main philosopher, is Socrates. And uh, as I said, Socrates was Plato's teacher. Plato held him in a great high esteem. Now, uh, as I said, he kind of uh, was the real foundation for Western philosophy, but uh, Socrates did not believe in the written word. He believed that it actually uh, made people dumber because they were relying on written words instead of memorizing real knowledge. Which, so that's that's a really interesting idea because that actually has um, some biblical implications also. Uh, now, th- this isn't really so much in the philosophy side of things, but but it is something that's interesting. Um, to look at the, the, there were two factions in the New Testament. Well, uh, kind of in between the the New and New Testament and the Old Testament. But in Jewish tradition, there were there were two factions. You had the scribes, you know, the Pharisees, and the scribes were people who believed in the written word. And I'm really thankful that they did because that's really why we have the written uh, preserved Old Testament. I mean, that's that's not why. Of course, God preserved it. But uh, the idea of they took great care to do that. But the Pharisees. Uh, would have fallen under a Socrates idea of memorizing scripture and the, the spoken word. It's uh, also really interesting when you look at um, uh, in Islam, uh, Muhammad was illiterate and uh, actually didn't have a, the written Quran until later. And how he would go and teach the Quran to others was through a chanting, almost a, a, a rhythmic chanting, you could almost say like a rap, uh, was how that was passed down. So, I mean, this is uh, something that, that, though it sounds really strange to us, the written word being wrong or, or not being there, it's actually something historically that has been used cent- for centuries and has been used often uh, and is a very um, normative thing when it comes historically uh, rather than in an irregular thing as we're probably listening and you're going that that sounds really weird it's actually not as weird as it sounds if you take a historical approach yes so uh but regardless because socrates did not believe in the written word uh, unfortunately we don't have any original works of his to examine for the podcast here so unfortunately we're going to kind of uh skip over socrates not for a lack of contribution or importance but 
just for the fact that he didn't believe in writing anything down, so we don't have anything of his to read. Right, but this, uh, in in some ways, I think it's safe to say that the Republic is kind of a, a mix of Plato and Socrates. I think that's probably fair to say, although it's not really truly provable. I would say the same thing. Obviously, Plato was Socrates' student, so I'm sure a lot of Socrates' ideas have made it through, but it is definitely wholly originally Plato. Right. So, a little bit uh, more with Plato, just to kind of summarize his life real quick. Uh, Socrates was executed in Athens uh, officially for corrupting the youth and refusing to believe in the gods unofficially because he just annoyed everyone with all his questions. <laughs> so uh, he was sentenced to death by poison, and uh, Plato uh, took that very hard. He ended up leaving Athens for a good time. He went on a uh, kind of break like we'd view as someone that takes a break between high school and college. He went traveling the world, trying to learn about the world and a little bit about himself. But... Uh, Eventually, he made it back to Athens. Uh, some people say he was kidnapped and rescued. Others say he just decided to come back. Uh, but either way, he came back, uh, founded a school of philosophy called the Academy, and went on to write many philosophical works, including the Republic. Well, that's a pretty, you know, pretty interesting thing about uh, about Plato. I mean, <laughs> you think about that. Um, just that idea of going in, trying to, to learn. I mean, he, he really, and we're going to see this in the works of the Republic, he really was a philosopher at heart. And uh, that's, that presents some, some great things. It also uh, presents some prejudices uh, that he had in, in his mind because of uh, how highly he, he held the idea of a philosopher. And you can kind of see some almost um, ridiculous ideas, I would say, that he comes to uh, because of that, but it, it's a pretty interesting concept. Um, but I think to really understand Plato, to really understand the Republic uh, in that historical context, we, you need to really get this in your mind. This guy is a pure philosopher, if there ever was such a thing. You know, uh, and one thing we've talked about, and we're going to dive into some of these guys too, there are a lot of people who are philosophers secondly, uh, and a lot of the people that we look to today for philosophy in, in modern philosophy, they really are microbiologists or they really are this or that. Um, and they're not truly philosophers, but they dive into philosophy. And so in that sense, they are philosophers. But Plato truly was a philosopher. That was his field. Is, is that fair to say? Uh, most definitely, and like you said, we'll be seeing a little bit more of that as we go through the Republic, not wanting to spoil any of it before we get there. But I think we've uh, beat around the bush a little enough here now. Let's dive into the Republic. All right, so the Republic is kind of divided into uh, ten books, uh, if that's correct. They're more like chapters. But right, it's more like chapters, but they're called books, uh, which, which I guess kind of makes sense. Um, so book one... What was it about? And I think there's one big question there. Yes. Book one asked one big question. What is justice? Now, obviously, we can uh, look ourselves. We kind of have an idea of what justice is, but they wanted to find a definition for justice that was only about justice and not about 
uh, the acts that it entails or the benefits or uh, consequences that come from it. They wanted to find a definition that was only about justice. So they, in one sense, would it be fair to say that they're kind of asking the question, what is morality, when they're asking that idea of what is justice? Uh, I would definitely say that. Uh, looking at trying to find out what justice is, they definitely looked at uh, the moral acts of individuals to find out, to try and distill those into a definition for justice. Right. So the idea of what is right is what they're kind of getting at, which yes. is... is is pretty big but not only what is right they wanted to know if it was even beneficial to a person to be just right now, now that's a, that's an important distinction to make uh, because it's it's the idea of saying they're not just trying to figure out what is right they're trying to figure out if it is profitable to be right and uh, that's an interesting idea when it comes into society in fact one of the interlocutors here I can't remember which one it was I think it was the third guy who spoke uh, in the narrative, um, uh, he basically comes to the idea that sometimes, it, or, or it's best, it, it's most profitable to be, and I'm definitely jumping ahead here, uh, to be most profitable to be just and unjust in different times, to have a mix and a balance of those two things. It, not even necessarily a, a mix or balance. He mostly advocated injustice, but... Uh, was maintaining the appearance of justice. He didn't, it's more profitable to be seen as just, but to actually, in truth, be unjust. Right, which had a lot to do with kind of a selfish motive. Isn't that right? That idea of a, a acting for what is best in, in your own opinion? Uh, yes, and that's what led him to the conclusion that justice could be defined as what is... Uh, in the benefit of the stronger. Right. Right. So, I, but I, like I said, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit there. <laughs> no, no, by all means. Um, the, the first question after they ask, what is justice? Which, which by the way, I, I kind of want to say, this is the right question to ask. And Travis and I have done a lot of talking about this kind of a thing uh, as we're looking at this, and this is going to be something that's really interesting as we develop it. What is justice is the right question to ask. What is right? What is wrong? What is morality? Is justice beneficial? Is, is there a reason to be right? Is there a reason to be moral? These are good questions to ask, and I think this is really where we see the benefit of Plato, the benefit of the Republic, is asking this, this correct question, but we're going to see it devolve here as we go into other books. Very and it, quickly. Yeah, very, very quickly, and this is, this is important um, to ask this question. In fact, I think it's the question that really all people, all true philosophers ask. W w would you agree with that? Definitely. I as we see, not only with justice, but it really gets to the idea of, not to uh, kind of be a cliche here, but it really gets the idea of what is truth. And looking at one specific aspect of that, in particular justice, and uh, as you said, it's uh, more an idea of morality. Right. Um, now, talk about this idea of, is it beneficial to the individual because this was kind of the the route that Plato took with this right so uh, book one one of the uh, other interlocutors uh, I believe his name was Thrasymachus 
Uh, I can see it spelled in my head. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Greek is not my first language. but Nor is it my second language. Because I don't have a second language. <laughs> but neither do I. But uh, his idea of justice was what was in benefit to the stronger, basically... And along with that, what was in benefit to the individual? Uh, so, is justice beneficial to the individual? He argued that it is not because no one would willingly choose justice. He argued that uh, there was more benefit to be had by acting unjustly. You benefit more when you uh, cheat someone in a trade deal than you do if you act honestly. You get more money, uh, you're able to get more goods, uh, and various aspects like that, you are be able to benefit more by acting unjustly. Now, there's a major problem with that <laughs> uh, when we look at the idea, of course, comparing philosophy to, uh, to the Bible, and, and I think it's kind of obvious is that there is justice, there is morality that's, that's uh, put forth in the Word of God. But I, I think that there's, th this isn't really the conclusion that they come to. This was just an idea that's presented. So th it, if we think of the idea of a philosopher, there is a proposition that is brought forth. And, and you can't see the hand gestures I'm making, so I probably shouldn't be making them. But anyway. Um, I can see them. It works. Yeah, so, so it works. But there, there's a proposition that is brought forth. And then they go and they attack uh, all around this proposition. Uh, they go and they, they come and they throw different ideas to see if it can undo this proposition or this premise, I should say. Uh, and, and this is kind of exactly, this isn't kind of, this is exactly what Plato is doing. He, he's working out uh, all these different premises and then he's going and attacking them in this dialogue from these different people. Uh, which, which is, I mean, this is really how, how you think or you should think. Um, so he is doing a great job at thinking. Now we're going to come to, at, at the end of this uh, book one or chapter one here, uh, we're going to come to a big issue that Plato had, and then we're going to see it completely devolve from that. And this is, we're going to spend most time probably talking about book one. Uh, so, <laughs> so, book one and uh, book two, I'd say, are probably the biggest ideas here. Right. Um, it's so... So, so we, we look at that idea of, of just kind of setting this up. It, this guy goes in, in, is it beneficial to the individual? This is taking a poke at the idea of justice. Uh, do we really need to be just? And that's, that's a good question to ask. But the question, uh, and I don't know if, we, do you want me to answer that question now or at the end of book two? Uh, go ahead. Yes, we need to be just. That was pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, oh, we'll get we'll get more into that in. We'll in get more two. into the why in a minute, right? But yes, yeah, so obviously you should be just. But uh, the biggest thing that we came away with from book one, the biggest thing that Plato came away with, is the idea that there is an objective truth of justice. Justice isn't relative; it is objective. Now, why is that important, Travis? Well, if you leave justice as subjective, that means that. It is up for interpretation and according to any group of people, any individual, and any society. And when you leave it subjective to a person, it can easily be corrupted. It can easily be led astray. Right. A, a, a fluid ethic or a fluid justice or a fluid morality or a fluid truth 
it doesn't work. Justice, just as truth, just as morality, by definition, must be exclusive, or it ceases to be that thing. A very drastic example that we see in the real world is uh, if we look back at Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the things that they did and the atrocities that they committed, according to their society, they were moral, they were just. But obviously we know that they weren't. So if justice is truly subjective, then that would mean that you would have to admit that what Germany did was just and moral. Right, and that's so this is what we call in philosophy the is-ought distinction. Um, just because something is that way doesn't mean it ought to be that way. So just because Nazi Germany, they said that Jews weren't people uh, or didn't give them the value of people, it doesn't mean that it ought to be that way. And the only way that we can have an is-ought distinction is if there is a objective morality, if there is an objective standard for society. And here Plato recognizes that there must be an objective justice. There must be an objective justice. But unfortunately, he did not have anything to ground that to. He did not have a standard of justice to compare that to. He recognized that justice must be objective, but could not come up with a definition of it at the beginning. He could not uh, find anything to compare it to. Right, and that kind of leads us into book two when he asks the question, what is justice, right? Yes, yeah, so book two, they continue to tackle the idea of what is justice. At the end of book one, uh, Thrasymachus, the guy that thought that justice was uh, just what benefits the individual or the stronger, he kind of uh, got tired of the conversation, got angry, he left. So now we're down to a... Unjustly of him, he left. Uh, absolutely unjustly. <laughs> but uh, we're left with Socrates and uh, some other of the interlocutors. Now, uh, going forward, it, it's important to note that the other philosophers agreed with Socrates in the dialogue. But just for the sake of continuing the conversation, a couple of them decided to play devil's advocate and... Uh, continue arguing against uh, the benefits of justice. So they got into the idea of why do people act justly? Not, not only whether it's beneficial or not, but why should people act justly, if at all? Right. And what was their answers? So... Uh, or the reasons, I should say, more than answer. So first they started off with uh, where they thought justice originated from. And their idea was that people who have suffered evils and who have committed evil get together. They decide that it's better to avoid evil altogether and they make laws against it. So, so now this actually brings us to a philosophical issue that, that Plato doesn't, I don't believe Plato addresses. Um, and this comes back to the idea that it's an ungrounded justice. Okay. How would he define evil? Which is, is actually the questions that are still being asked today in philosophy. How does one um, define evil? And the, the problem is, is that without an ungrounding, without a solid foundation, which I, I, if you're a Christian, you probably know where we're heading here with the solid foundation. Spoiler alert, it's the Bible. And um, it, it, we, we look at this idea, though, without a solid foundation— 
it becomes, it takes that justice, that morality, those ethics, and it makes them subjective, even though Plato recognizes we must have objective morality or objective justice. If you don't have something to ground it in, if you don't have that objective standard, even if you recognize that it should be objective, eventually you will make, you'll subject it to your own ideas. Mm-hmm. But uh, so they uh, continue going through why should people act justly or unjustly, and uh, the next conclusion they come to is that people act justly to avoid punishment, to avoid consequences, and to argue this they. Uh, the interlocutor, I don't recall his name, starts with a G, some like Golius or something like that. But uh, he brings up a story uh, of a shepherd who finds a ring. And uh, this is going to sound kind of like uh, something from J.R.R. Tolkien. It turns out that the ring turns him invisible. Uh, he discovers this at a weekly shepherd's meeting. And seeing that no one can see what he's doing, uh, that he's uh, free from these consequences... He goes and uh, sleeps with the king's wife, uh, subverts the kingdom, takes rule, and he's now king of everything uh, for uh, performing unjust acts. But uh, he only did it because he avoided consequences, is the argument that's made. Because if he had not had that ring, he would have never done it because he would have had to face consequences for those acts that he committed. Uh, so through that story, uh, the, that philosopher tries to show that uh, the only reason that people would act justly is to avoid that punishment. And lastly, he says that uh, just uh, looking at uh, between the just and unjust life, he argues that the unjust life is better. Uh, he argues that uh, justice is also only done for appearances, that you don't really do justice because of any good for it, but you do justice... Uh, because you want to appear just, you want to appear right and honorable. Now, a man who is unjust but appears just will be rewarded. He argues that if anyone has the opportunity to be unjust but still appear just, he would do it. And that, uh, getting a little bit into the Greek religion there, he also makes argument that a man who is unjust uh, will uh, eventually become wealthier and will have uh, more opportunities to appease uh, and make atonement to the Greek gods for all those acts. So, given that there wouldn't even be any consequences if you did it enough and did it, uh, uh, were proficient at it, that without any consequences, why wouldn't you live an unjust life? Right. So, so now you you bring up an interesting idea here because uh, some people might be saying, now, um, how could you say that? they don't have a solid foundation if you believe that religion is the solid foundation for um, for justice, for morality. And, and now understand something that I'm trying to say here. I My argument isn't that religion itself is this solid foundation. It's that the Bible is this solid foundation. There is a distinction that's being made there. But some people might go and say, well, that, that's religion, so how can you say uh, that the Christian religion is better than uh, the Greek mythology? And it's actually pretty simple to go and to say why it's better, specifically from a philosophical standpoint, without defending the Bible, though I don't mind defending the Bible, and we'll, we'll probably do that at some point in time, but this podcast can't go on for 17 hours, so we're not going to do that today. Um, was were Greek in Greek mythology? Was it a polytheistic view or a monotheistic view? Definitely polytheistic. 
Now, were all of the gods always on the same page in Greek mythology? Absolutely not. We see in uh, a lot of old myths, particularly uh, Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey, that the gods were constantly uh, at odds with each other. And not only were they at odds with each other, but uh, many times they acted unjustly. They acted immorally. Right, they acted immorally, they acted unjustly, which is interesting, because does that mean that there is a different view of justice amongst the gods? Absolutely. So they have different standards. So all of a sudden here, you're trying to figure out, well, which god's standard do you, do you obey by? Which god do you serve then has a different standard for justice, and then there would be a different standard for justice upon everybody. And if there's a different standard upon justice with everybody, then it's a subjective ob- uh, justice, a sub, ugh, boy, that's tough to say, a subjective justice instead of an objective justice. And that causes a problem because then there's no justice at all, but it's everybody doing what's right in their own eyes or in their own God's eyes, so to say. Yeah. And we're going to look at that uh, even a little bit more in book three. We hit on that a little bit more, but uh, that is the main ideas of book two, but it ends with Uh, a proposition by Socrates that if they really want to know what justice is, it's harder to define it through the individual. But if it were able to look at it from a larger scope, such as from the scope of what justice looks like to a state, that it would be easier to come to a conclusion. Which, going back to your example with Nazi Germany, that also presents the issue of the is-ought distinction, because if they were to go in to examine Nazi Germany, they would find out that um, that's a pretty bad idea to look at justice from the scope of a society instead of looking at it from the scope of an individual. Uh, that you can't actually find that from society because just because something is the, the common value, just because that is the, the common thread, doesn't mean that it ought to be that way. Exactly. So, uh, But nonetheless, they... Uh, begin their work on uh, their ideal of the perfect state. And uh, at the end of book two, they come, they just make a very basic foundation that uh, there must be those that produce, uh, farmers, craftsmen, artisans, uh, the people that trade, like merchants and such, they compose one class of people. Then you have a class of rulers at the top that make all the decisions that lead that state. And then you have a Uh, middle class of uh, warriors who uh, defend and enforce that state. And if I remember right, he defined these by gold, silver, and bronze, right? Uh, Yes, he does, but uh, we'll be getting to that a little bit later here. I believe that's the next book, actually. uh, So, uh, jumping into book three, uh, he begins with uh, looking at some ideas that would benefit the state, and Right away here, we see where he starts to uh, go off. He starts with the different ways that they should censor the arts. Now, this is an interesting idea of censoring the arts, and in in this was kind of the distinction, one of the distinctions that I was trying to make about Plato and understanding Plato ahead of time when we're looking at him. He is a philosopher at heart. It is interwoven into the fabric of who Plato is. He is he, he is a, a biased philosopher. And what I mean by this is, and we're going to actually see this develop, I think, even more in book five, I want to say, but we'll see when we get there. Uh, Plato 
uh, or maybe that was book 10 even. I, I, I don't remember. We'll, we'll get there, though. The, the notes will, will help define these things um, as to where they come in the, the linear view of the Republic. But Plato does not really, he doesn't really like art. <laughs> no. It, I wouldn't say that he dislikes art in general, but he... Uh, dislikes the effects of art on a society. Yeah. To him, art was a tool that uh, should be used for the benefit of the state. Right. So, hence, why it needs to be censored because it needs to. It, you can't just have anybody going and projecting something. It needs to be used with a purpose. So, essentially, he's laying the foundation for uh, uh, propaganda. <laughs> Basically, so the first thing that they talk about censoring is poetry. Uh, now, uh, we don't mean like uh, love poems or anything here. We're talking about the great ancient poets like uh, Homer, who wrote the mm -hmm. Iliad and the Odyssey. Now, uh, they, his idea was to first censor out anything that would cause a fear of death. That's going to be kind of tough. <laughs> yeah, that takes out quite a bit of the uh, works. And he even admits in the Republic that uh, it's not for the lack of poetical genius or the uh, anything such as that, but merely the fact that it's just unbeneficial to that state. Now, uh, we, we kind of mentioned that Socrates died officially because of rejecting the gods. Would this be kind of something that went into that, the idea of the fear of death, uh, him wanting to uh, perhaps being passed down to Plato, and of course this is Plato uh, in the narrative, he's, he's using Socrates, so perhaps he's even presenting Socrates' actual opinion. Um, would this be uh, a, a kind of part of the idea of Socrates's view. I'm not sure if we can do that by fear of death, but uh, possibly by the second area in poetry that he wanted to censor, and that was uh, certain portrayals of the gods. Now, uh, kind of like what we were talking about, uh, you have to be able to ground truth and, and justice in something. Now, uh, because they recognized the gods of the time to be immoral, unjust, uh, acted uh, however they wanted and all that. Uh, he saw a great potential for people to use those acts of the gods as justification for their own choices. So he thought that the best idea was to censor anything in poetry that portrayed the gods in any negative sense, in any unjust or immoral acts. So I really like this idea here of what's coming up because I think this really gets us into uh, in, into the Bible and why the Bible uh, would reject Plato's philosophy, but the idea of, um, and we're going to see this in a little bit, it's very interesting that he's saying, you know, uh, anything that's immoral, we're going to censor that because Plato himself had very immoral ideas. And we're going to see the, the, the devolving of that uh, in, in just a moment. But... Plato recognizes that there must be a higher authority. There must be a higher moral arbiter uh, above even his gods because his gods were, were immoral. He recognized this. There was something that was telling him that, that this, is, this is wrong. It's that the law that is, is written on our hearts, as it talks about in, uh, I think, Romans 2. And 
uh, we, we look at this idea, and the the problem is, and this is the, the issue with Greek philosophy alone and why it couldn't be alone the foundation for Western civilization, why it couldn't create a, a truly great civilization, and, and that is they're asking the right questions. And this is the thing that I, I, I'm going to say about Plato probably a million times. He's asking the right questions. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. He's greatly asking the right questions. He's seeing the right problems. He's understanding there must be objective justice. But he doesn't have the, the grounding to put it in. He doesn't have that, uh, what we call the Judeo-Christian ethic or ideals to uh, ground that to, to compare that to, and have a foundation in. Right. And and we look at this, this is why it was a melding of these two things to create Western civilization. There had to be a set standard. There had to be a, a consistent standard. There had to be a one-voice standard. And um, there, there had to be something that, that actually uh, fit within that idea of what's in our hearts to know right and wrong, that conscience that we have. And... Uh, that, of course, comes only through the Judeo-Christian uh, ethic, which is found in the Word of God. When we look at those things, okay, the, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not do, the, you, you know, all, all these thou shalt nots, um, it, it hits us, uh, and actually it's, we could probably even go beyond uh, that and just say the halal, uh, the seven uh, things that that Jews require Gentiles when they come into they, but but nonetheless, uh, when they come into the Jewish religion, um, it's it's this idea of a moral standard that is found in God's Word that is absolutely vital because it's consistent, uh, because it's it, it's monotheistic, it's one tone. Uh, instead of multiple God speaking, he couldn't go and anchor this into that. And so it's, it's very interesting that he, he even recognizes that his gods are not good enough to anchor real justice. That, that's just uh, fascinating to me. And, and he's right. They're not good enough. Uh, the only thing that is good enough is the Word of God, the Bible. Absolutely right. So you see how he censored poetry, uh, also, he would censor uh, music in this ideal state of his. Uh, I don't recall the Greek words for it, but uh, he had an idea that music should be censored to only ones based off of two certain minor scales, one that would uh, encourage uh, courage in times of conflict and one that would encourage temperance in times of peace. So that's, uh, that's a really interesting idea there, too, because he, he recognizes the value of courage and he recognizes the value of um, temperance in, in times of peace. And, and even how he recognizes the effect that music has on the state of a person. Mm-hmm. Right. He also wanted to censor uh, arts, as in uh, sculptures and paintings as well, to only have things that were uh, beautiful. He didn't want anything that portrayed anything... Uh, uh, revolting or uh, just that was not considered beautiful anything like uh, of uh, scenes of tragedy or a hardship yeah. we see that that censorship is it becomes a really interesting idea and an interesting concept that that he brings in uh, because he does recognize the arts uh, impact on society and no doubt 
they do have impact on society. Absolutely. It's, it's seen, art is kind of used as a uh, gauge point for the success of a society. Uh, because art is not inherently necessary to survival, you only see societies produce art that are uh, prosperous. Only in societies that have uh, met the necessities of survival enough to be able to afford time toward artistic uh, pursuits. That's the word I'm looking for. Now, uh, he interesting. He, there's another interesting idea that's brought up because it wasn't just the philosopher that Plato uh, believed in, but it was a specific kind of philosopher because it wasn't just the mind that he thought was important to train, but it was also the body. And so could you tell us a little bit about the physical training? Yes. So uh, the main form of physical training in uh, the Greek world was gymnastics. I know they're not quite as we view them today, but... Uh, Regardless, he thought that uh, all those, especially those in the uh, ruling and the warrior class of his perfect society, uh, that they should undergo uh, rigorous physical training. Uh, his idea was that it was beneficial to their health, and with a uh, healthy body, they were more able to uh, sustain and uh, protect a healthy mind. Uh, the idea that a sound mind resides inside of a sound body. But not only did he believe that uh, uh, people should maintain uh, their health and physical training, but he had the idea that they should let those who were intemperate, those that refused to uh, maintain their health, that the doctors in his perfect society should just let them die. That's not very just or moral. <laughs> no, and here again we see an example of this uh, disconnection between uh, the Judeo-Christian, the blah, 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 excuse me, I can't talk today apparently. We see again this disconnect between the Judeo-Christian ethic and uh, Plato's philosophy. Uh, we see that he definitely did not have a belief in the inherent value of human life. Right. Now, of course, the Judeo-Christian ethic does teach an inherent value in, in human life as it says that all people are created in the image of God. God made man in his own image. And so as image bearers of having the, uh, the that... Uh, that uh, that idea of that we're all created in the image of God, there is intrinsic value in life, and God actually puts a price on that life, so to say, um, by coming and sending his son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be saved. God values life. Uh, he cares for each and every person. And, and that's something that um, that isn't viewed. And so, I mean, when we look at this idea, it, we could ask the question, uh, is slavery wrong in the sense of, uh, should people be considered property? And of course, people go and say, yeah, that's that's wrong. Well, why? And when eventually, as we come down to it, it's because each person has what we call a personhood. And so therefore, people are not property. They are, in fact, persons. And you can see here the rejection of that view in Plato's, uh, and now he might not come out and say it here, uh, that he completely rejects it, uh, a personhood, but you can see that as he's treating people as lesser people. He's treating them with a lesser value of a personhood or not even a personhood at all, as they should just be left alone to die if they have physical ailments. Yes, and we not only see that uh, some people just don't have any value at all, but we also see that people have 
different amounts of value. And that brings us to the last topic in book three, and that's what is called the noble lie. Now, uh, the noble lie consists of two parts. One, that uh, the head rulers of that state would tell all the members of that state that uh, they are not born from people, that they just kind of are born from the earth, that they just kind of sprout out of holes, I guess, like Cabbage <laughs> Patch Kids. But uh, not only that, but they are born with different aspects to themselves, that some people are what he called gold people. Those would be the rulers, the great thinkers and philosophers that would lead the state. There are the silver people, the warriors, the defenders, the military. Then the uh, brass and iron people, the producers, the uh, tradesmen, the farmers, the craftsmen, uh, all the extra bits at the bottom. Right, and this is an interesting uh, view on society because it wasn't just the idea um, of the idea of making a caste system of going and saying, you know, there are some people that are uh, that that rise to the top. It's not he's not talking about a one percent middle class and then lower class. That's not what he's talking about here. He's actually talking about the value of people based on their uh, their natural born traits that they have. And so it's not the idea of just saying, well, this is where people fit into society. He's saying that rightly they fit into that society, that that, that is their value. Their value is attached to the class that they're in. Yes. And with that, that is the end of book three. So with that, the basic foundation of his state is done. Uh, going into book four, he starts to pick apart the virtues of that state. Uh, and he came up with four of them. Wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. Yeah. And we're just about, uh, four or five chapters in, we're just about to a definition of justice. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so how does he first of all define wisdom, though? Because we'll, we'll take these in order. So first, he defines wisdom as knowing best how to deal with itself and the other states. And that, Again, these are the virtues of that state, not the virtues themselves. Now, he believed that wisdom was only necessary for the ruling class, for the gold class, because they're the ones making all the decisions. Wisdom was not necessary for anyone else. Do you see how it's not a republic? Do you see how this becomes an aristocracy? It is the gold class that he's talking about is ruling. And so it's, it's not a republic here. He doesn't care about the people's voice. He cares about the ruler's voice. Yes. So... Next, we see courage, and he defined that as the true opinion of real and false dangers. Now, by that, he means that it should be cultivated in the society to uh, fear dishonor and shame more than difficulty and struggle. Uh, you should be willing to uh, do everything, even die for the state, rather than uh, to be dishonored and shamed. And this was especially true for the silver class. Uh, the military class. He did not believe that courage was necessary to either of the other classes. Which is just, I, 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 it's a fascinating concept. Um, uh, very, uh, I, I don't even know quite what to say about that, uh, that courage wouldn't be that. And I actually do like his idea of uh, shame and dishonor, and we're going to actually see um, later on, I think it's in book eight, where he goes and he talks about basically the uh, devolving of a society as it goes from a, an aristocracy to a timocracy to a, I think, democracy. Oligarchy. Oh, oligarchy, that's right. Oligarchy and then a democracy. 
uh, and then tyranny, um, w which he actually has some really good points there in that line. And I think that there you can see that line moving uh, in societies. And I, it, now I think that at different times they can be reversed and, and different things like that. But uh, but that is a, a pretty interesting concept there of courage, specifically only for the silver class. Uh, but next comes to temperance, and what does he mean by that? So temperance, he defined in terms of the state as the agreement between all classes on who has the right to rule. Now, obviously, the gold class, the ruling philosopher thinking class, was who he believed should rule. But uh, he believed that this idea of temperance was the agreement between all classes that it should be that way. And this was based on his view of uh, people's rational selves versus their irrational selves. And so this is an interesting idea, and this is how it is a somewhat of a foundation for Western civilization here, this principle, um, because it, it's not elevating the military warlord as the ruler, which uh, in times past that has been the case. And it's also not elevating a monarchy just because somebody was your dad doesn't mean that you should be the ruler. He is looking at this as saying uh, a true aristocracy, the idea of uh, the elite should rule. And he defines the elite specifically as philosophers. Once again, looking at that idea that Plato was at heart a biased philosopher. I mean, he, he biased towards philosophy. And it's helpful to note that he didn't believe that philosophers should be the rulers just because he was in favor of philosophers. But uh, his idea in the state was that these ruling philosophers would, from their birth, be groomed to be leaders that would do what is in best for the state. Right. So it, it it's... Looking at it from that perspective, you can see the difference between how this is not a uh, uh, tyranny, rather that it is a true aristocracy in his ideal right. state. Right. Now we finally come to this definition of justice. What does he mean by justice? So justice, in his view, in the idea of the state, is everyone in their classes doing the jobs specific to their classes and staying out of the way of the other classes. Okay. Now, he goes on to describe the just man, which I think helps in defining this, um, this definition of justice also. Yes. So now that we see the idea of Plato's perfect state, uh, how it's split up into the three classes, we look at how that applies to the individual. And he uh, took the individual, uh, and he claims that that person, that person's soul, uh, was itself made of three parts. There was the rational side, the uh, thinking side that we would know as the brain, the mind. Uh, there was the spirited, passionate side that we kind of think of as the heart. And then there is the irrational side, the uh, uh, appetitive side, the side that seeks uh, basic uh, lusts, uh, uh, sexual lusts, ap hunger, appetites, thirst, and he believed that the just man was the man who had all parts fulfilling their functions and uh, never subverting authority from each other. That the just man is the man whose rational side is in command of the other two. Right. So that, now this is the interesting thing because as we've, we've mentioned several times that the problem with Plato was not that he uh, 
wasn't asking the right questions. He was seeking the right things. He was he was totally on the right path in his uh, questioning. But he didn't have something to ground it to. He didn't have a solid foundation to ground it to. But here we see his attempt to ground justice to something. So he attempts, and this is, correct me if I'm wrong here, Travis, uh, the two things that he's trying to to anchor justice in are one, society, and two, a balance of society. Yes, that, I would say that is correct. Now here's the problem, and this, is, this was the, the best example I think that you could have given. In Nazi Germany, there was, now I... I have to be careful here, but first of all, there was a society there, and the way that it was, or or that idea of once we what we call in the world of philosophy is, it was unjust, or if it were current day, it is unjust. The idea of Nazi Germany. Now you could make an argument, I think, to say now it wouldn't have been the same as um, as Aristotle. We're not talking about Aristotle, Plato. Uh, it, it wouldn't be the same balance that Plato was talking about with this idea of gold, silver, and bronze. So, so that would be the philosophical argument here. But I think that there was a somewhat to say a gold, silver, and bronze group of people in Nazi Germany. There was a ruling class. Now, granted, it might have essentially been Hitler. <laughs> there might not have been too much room in there, so I understand. I'm not trying to say that there was an aristocracy. It was yeah, a tyranny. You had a tyranny. couple of lower-level rulers that you could kind of group in there. Right. But then he obviously viewed the uh, Nazi military group as the silver class. Yes, uh, obviously the uh, actual military outfighting the war and then the uh, Nazi SS maintaining order within the society. Right. And then, of course, the rest of society would have been the bronze class, and there would have been those who were lower than bronze also, uh, who weren't people. Now, the, the problem is, is I would say that that at least somewhat takes the uh, view of Plato uh, in his, his I'm going to call it what it is, a caste system uh, to a degree. And in fact, there are some other ideas that I think Plato was uh, foundational for that was ran with with Nazi Germany. And I don't think this was where Plato necessarily wanted to go, but this is the issue. When we anchor justice, when we anchor morality in something other than the Word of God, we're always going to have an unjust uh, ethic. We're always going to have an immoral morality. We're always going to have a wrong morality, and it's going to always devolve and lead to great and horrible sins. The Bible is the only anchor that we can have. People can recognize the need for an objective morality. People can recognize that there is an objective morality, but they cannot rightly define that objective morality outside of the Word of God. The biblical worldview is the only foundation for objective morality. Yes, I think that in the idea of the individual, he got as close as one possibly could without that objective standard. I think for... The state in general, he's way off bounds, but uh, for the individual, uh, I think he got as close as he could without having that biblical truth. Uh, he goes on to describe that if you let the passionate side uh, rule over the rational, that uh, you're controlled by your passions, you will make uh, rash judgments, and uh, unjust things will come from that. If you let your uh, irrational side that... Uh, uh, that side with uh, various appetites, 
take over, then you will do unjust things to fulfill those appetites without giving heed to any rational thought behind it. Yep. yep. So with that, now that we have finally a definition for justice, not necessarily a right definition, but a definition, uh, we move into book five. Now, uh, the first idea that he talks about in book five uh, is uh, the idea of uh, the equality between men and women in society. No, Travis and I have talked about this quite a bit, um, and it's it's difficult to say that he's was an egalitarian according to today's definition of egalitarianism, um, because technically he probably still would have fit somewhat in a complementarian view, but for his day he would have been radically egalitarian. Yes, so. Uh, now, this was in the ancient world where women typically had little to no rights at all. And his idea in his perfect society was giving men and women equal rights and equal opportunities in his entire society. Uh, he viewed that women could hold positions in all three classes. They could be rulers, they could be in the military class, and they could be in the uh, bronze working class. Uh, but uh, he did recognize uh, differences in nature between the two. Uh, obviously, men tend to be more aggressive. Women tend to be more nurturing. Different things such as that. Right, and so, um, like I said, so he's he's somewhat egalitarian, uh, which the, I, I would argue that the Bible is completely complementarian, uh, not authoritarian, but complementarian. The idea of there are different roles between men and women, and these roles are are not of any more or less value. And so in that sense, in value, they're equal, but in the sense of uh, roles, they are distinct and different and um, definitely categorized. Mm -hmm. Now, it, that was kind of where the difference comes in is he did not believe in uh, differences in roles at all, just in uh, nature. And uh, he also admitted that there was a uh, trend toward a higher physical strength in men. Uh, but going past men and women, he also uh, looked at how children would be reared in this society. And this is where we start going off the deep end here. Remember when we said that you have to anchor justice and morality in the Bible or eep, it goes bad? Well, here it goes bad. So he had the idea that, uh, and which is we typically see in society, is that uh, people tend to uh, treat everyone who is family or well-known friends better than they would strangers. So his idea was to make the entire society a family. And his solution to this was that uh, uh, there are no closed relationships. All relationships in the society are opened. And throughout the year, uh, there would be state-sponsored orgies. And the children conceived from those orgies would be taken at birth. Uh, so they wouldn't know who their parents is. Parents wouldn't know who their children are. Uh, they would be... Uh, raised and reared by the society itself, and that would f supposedly foster a sense of family through the entire society. Which I suppose, to be fair, um, somebody who is looking at this and uh, who's going to criticize probably the things that I, I'm going to push back on, uh, what Plato's saying is that they might go and say that Plato's premise was asking what is just and not what is moral. I don't believe that you can separate those two things uh, honestly, I believe that justice is tied to morality, um, 
But I suppose somebody thinking about this critically could go in, in especially trying to criticize uh, where I would stand on this and where the Bible stands on this is that they could say, well, this is this is still just. It's just simply immoral. And I, I don't think that you can have something that is just and, uh, and immoral at the same time. Um, because uh, to act immorally is to enact injustice upon someone. And uh, I, I think that's that's pretty clear when we look at, at this biblically, is that uh, these, th- these orgies then would be that your sexual partners uh, that you're having, you are acting unjustly in that way. And he does actually devolve even more in this idea of this these state-sponsored orgies also. Uh, but you'd be acting unjustly to your partner. And of course, um, uh, we could get into just in the fact of sexually transmitted diseases. We could go and look at all those other things and how this would become an injustice, uh, that you're not being faithful, that you're not giving the person the relational needs uh, outside of, of sexuality because um, a, a partner uh, with that, a, a, a husband, a wife, a, a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, however you want to uh, define those kind of things, the, there is more need than just a sexual need. And this is only, this is looking specifically at a physical function instead of a uh, mental and a emotional connection also uh, through those things. So obviously he's completely throwing aside uh, psychology. Um, but beyond that, he's also throwing aside the, uh, the, the nature of man in what we actually know. There is a guilt for somebody when they go and they uh, cheat on their spouse. And there's a reason for that. It is because it is immoral or unjust before God. Yes. So he continues not only with these state-sponsored orgies, but he continues into his idea of eugenics, uh, that... Uh, these orgies wouldn't just be random, that uh, you would draw lots for who you would be sleeping with. But not only that, but the state would be rigging these lots. So uh, no one would actually, it wouldn't just be a uh, randomness in uh, who you slept with. The state already had it planned out. And their idea was that uh, the gold class would uh, continue to sleep with the gold class uh, to kind of uh, uh, maintain the high genetic standards of that class and that uh, you would l- rig the middle and lower classes uh, to sleep together to try and improve the genes of the lower class. Right. So, so we look at this idea. Once again, it's it's the foundation for modern eugenics. It's the, the idea of the, the foundational idea behind the uh, Aryan race of Nazism. I, I would say looking at that, the idea that there is an eliteness uh, to look at that, but the, the big issue is is that it denies the biblical foundation that all men are created in the image of God, which makes us equal on a creation standpoint, in a personhood standpoint, in who we are and who are we are to be. Yes, and uh, it's here that he uh, really starts to hunker down on the idea that these rulers, these gold classes, would be the philosophers of the time. And he starts to defend that as we go into book six here. Uh, he defends the idea that was held by a few people at the time in Greece that uh, uh, philosophers were useless and even sometimes evil. Now, uh, he attributed this... That could be true. <laughs> it, 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 we would definitely define some of Plato's ideas as almost evil. But obviously, I don't think he intended it that way, but... It, 
with his lack of morality and justice, it definitely turned out that way. Right. But uh, he uh, attributed this uh, this belief of philosophers at the time to a lack of understanding of their real work, and he compared it to a uh, sea captain and his crew uh, that uh, a crew that was uh, inciting mutiny against their captain that uh, wanted to rule for themselves and. Uh, not understanding exactly what the captain did. Now, none of these crew members knew how to navigate a ship. They viewed the captain, who uh, was always looking at constellations and making uh, charts to navigate the ship, as being a lazy stargazer, not knowing what he was really doing. And so they tried to uh, overthrow him. And he compares that to the understanding of philosophers, that... Uh, the majority of people don't understand the real work of philosophers. And he goes in to describe what he thought that work is, and that was trying to uh, discover the truths that are in what Plato describes as a world of forms. Now, this is where we get uh, to be kind of a really interesting, um, uh, because you kind of get into, well, not kind of, you get into his religion here, uh, his his true core beliefs as to how the world works. And... Um, is this where we want to go and describe the forms, or, or we want to do that later on? Uh, we can go ahead and describe that now. So, uh, his idea of the world of forms is that everything you see in the world is an imperfect version of a perfect form. Uh, let's take a tree, for example. You can look outside, there are lots of different kinds of trees. Uh, they're tall, short, uh, wide, thin, uh, they're... Uh, deciduous trees that have leaves, there are pine trees that don't, uh, but all of these are imperfect versions of a perfect tree, which exists in that world of forms. And that applies to everything that we see around us. Right, and so essentially the perfect, the, the world of forms and the perfect forms would be um, essentially Plato's version of heaven then. <laughs> it, in a way, yes. It, it he goes really out there with that. His idea of the perfect form of a person was that at one time uh, there was no uh, separation of gender, that we were uh, combined as one weird human thing, that we had four arms, four legs, two heads, and all that. And he makes some, he tells some story about how the gods split us in half. And that's kind of where we get the idea of trying to find our other half. That's an interesting concept. That's all I have to say about that one. <laughs> yes, uh, definitely out there, but uh, I think we're going to just kind of skip that part. Yeah, and I don't think that's overly covered in the Republic too much there. Not a whole lot, but it it to kind of fit in with the Greek religion, it's covered a bit in there, but it's not very helpful to philosophy today. Right. So uh, the... Last important thing about this world of forms is that abstract concepts exist in the world of forms. Things like language, uh, mathematics, things that are not physical but are objective uh, truths and ideas exist in that world of forms. In the perfect form, right? Is what he's saying. So he's saying that's the line of perfection that's going throughout all of this. And that's what we're seeing 
when we're, we're not seeing physically, but the idea that's what we're grasping. That's how he knows there must be an objective reality. Yes. And he goes on to kind of give an illustration for this in book seven. And this is one of the things that Plato is most famous for. And this is his allegory of the cave. Okay. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and try to illustrate it here. Uh, not on paper. I want you, I'm going to describe it for you. So people on listening to us can actually understand what I'm talking about. Sounds good. But uh, his idea was that uh, there are a group of people who from birth are chained and held prisoner in a cave. Now, uh, sitting behind them is a fire that lights the wall in front of them. And uh, throughout their lives, throughout the day, people hold up different things between the fire and the prisoners so they see shadows of it on the wall. And these shadows that they see are the only thing that they have seen for their entire life. This is reality to them. Now, suppose one day one of the prisoners uh, discovers he can break his chains. And he turns around and he sees the fire. And he sees the things that these people are holding up creating shadows. And immediately his perception of reality is changed. He sees that there is something besides the shadows that there is... Uh, something casting those and not only does he see that but he gets up and he leaves the cave and not only does he see these objects that they're holding up but he sees the sun he sees the sky grass water rivers trees uh, cities uh, other people and he uses this to describe how uh, the things that we see in the world are like those shadows in the cave that they are reflections, that they are uh, pale descriptions of what is really there. Now, he also describes about how uh, math is the best way to understand this world of forms. He believes that the purpose of mathematics was not counting or economics or anything of the sort. He believed that the real purpose of mathematics was... Uh, to see that there was a way to understand real truth and philosophy in this world of forms, since math is an abstract concept that existed in that world. Well, and you can kind of see where he gets this idea of being um, uh, w with logic of what you do to one side, you must do to the other, uh, a mathematical uh, mathematical logic. And, and, and so uh, that, that's an interesting idea, but it's it, he, he's essentially what we would say denying metaphysics uh, to a degree <laughs> slightly to a degree I, maybe that's the wrong way to put it in the denying metaphysics but he's he, he's really elevating the physical world I would almost argue the opposite of that okay he, he's not so much denying metaphysics but he is uh, almost kind of laying a foundation for it it's okay. definitely not what it would uh, go on to be but uh, kind of that idea of what consists of the universe is not only what we see. It is, there that, is, yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah. There is existence beyond what we perceive and that our senses themselves are faulty. But he believed that the only re way to understand uh, anything else was through logic and rationalism was through philosophy. Right. And just a quick reminder on the definition of metaphysics. Uh, it's the branch of philosophy that seeks to understand the fundamental nature of reality and being. So that, that's, a, that's very, very 
much accurate there that this is more of laying the foundation for metaphysics as we know it today, though it's um, changed quite a bit. Yes. As it's a foundation, it's been built upon. He, he doesn't really lay a f anything for a supernatural world there, but he definitely right. uh, lays the foundation that we see uh, that a lot of 16th century philosophers will take and uh, looking at uh, if our senses are truly accurate. Right. Well, and I was actually listening to this and I was going, you know, it almost sounds like he's laying a foundation for the Enlightenment period, or at least that phrase of being enlightened, the idea of now we've been enlightened past reality of, of or our perceived reality and into a true reality. But I, I don't know if that's really quite uh, the case, or obviously I don't think it's what he was intending there for that. No, but it's definitely what uh, turned out to happen. Right. So in book eight, we talk about different forms of government. And once again, this is important to understand because uh, he does believe in, in different forms of different things and a perfection in his view, basically perfect, perfect government, as we've been talking about quite a bit, would be an aristocracy. But then he described the, the devolving of this perfect form of government. Yes. So uh, first, before we get into it, it's helpful to know that uh, the definitions of these different forms of government have changed. Mm -hmm. What Plato defined them as, and we'll give his definitions for them, but are not exactly the same as what they would be defined as now. Okay. So starting out, we have his perfect state, the aristocracy, which he believed would devolve into a timocracy. Mm -hmm. uh, now, a timocracy is a, a government that he defined as having rulers motivated by honor and ambition. Which would be kind of like, think of a, interestingly, a more Eastern nations like uh, Japan would be something like that, the, the samurai idea. Absolutely. That's a, a perfect one there. Another example, uh, even closer into the Greek world, we'd kind of see with Sparta. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I hadn't thought about Sparta. That That's a very good one. That's a very good one. Yes. To, to a degree, I would say uh, the United States moved into a timocracy back in the um, uh, 19, I, I don't, I guess I don't want to say exactly when, but kind of like after World War II, we somewhat, maybe not necessarily by the ruling idea, but we had that, a flavor of democracy that, that American patriotism, that bleeding red, white, and blue. Yes. So, uh, Plato's idea of how aristocracy would devolve in democracy was that eventually the silver class would kind of, uh, uh, eventually fail in their attempts to enforce order in the nation that uh, the classes would eventually mingle in a way that uh, was not meant to be and that uh, eventually uh, these uh, military rulers would kind of take over and that uh, the biggest thing that would motivate them is honor and ambition that they had. Uh, the uh, sense to be basically better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. So where would the democracy go? So from there, he believed it would descend into an oligarchy, which is, according to him, a system where the rich are in power and the poor are not. And he believed that it would devolve into an oligarchy uh, when uh, these people motivated by honor, trying to be better than everyone else, would see uh, wealth as a way to be better than everyone else. And eventually it would evolve into that oligarchy where instead of the honor and ambition leading everything, it would just be the accumulation of wealth. Right, which this is kind of one of those things where an oligarchy is a little bit differently defined today um, as really an oligarchy could almost be viewed as a 
uh, unchecked aristocracy uh, would kind of be the definition today, a little bit a a group of tyrants. (laughs) Possibly. Uh, Like the Supreme Court. Well, but but that's a thing for another day. Yes. So he believed from there it evolved into a democracy. Funny enough, we hold democracy in high esteem, but it was the second to lowest form of government according to Plato. Which actually the founding fathers uh, hated the idea of a democracy. Um, in, in the a sense pure of, democracy. Yes, a pure democracy. Uh, and that's why we, were, we would say we're a constitutional republic. But once again, uh, we'll go over political philosophy perhaps another day. Yes. So he defined democracy more of it as a mob rule. Uh, again, this is a direct democracy where uh, everyone uh, votes on everything and everything is determined by that vote. And he believed the oligarchy would descend into a democracy when eventually, basically, the poor had enough and overthrew the rich. Right. And then, of course, when it comes to that, we find the last one is tyranny. Yes, and tyranny he defines simply as government ruled by a tyrant. Uh, And he believed that democracy would uh, devolve into tyranny when these uh, people that now had uh, what they considered uh, just about unlimited freedom would continue pursuing freedom above everything else. Eventually, uh, it would descend into a anarchic uh, state where uh, no one would uh, want to abide by any laws for sense of own freedom and a powerful tyrant would seize power. Right, which... Which I think, um, actually, he's pretty brilliant in this this way of how the things move. I think you can actually see that a lot of ways that um, it, it does kind of, if you started an aristocracy, it can easily move to a timocracy. It can easily then move into an oligarchy. can easily then move into a democracy. And democracy, really, he's skipping one step, and that's anarchy. Uh, moves into anarchy. Mob rule leads into uh, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes because everybody soon is casting their own votes. They want what they want and they're voting for themselves then. And the problem is this anarchy always leads to tyranny. And that's the the destabilization of culture. And uh, we're going to be looking at this idea of really he brings some premises of communism here. But the idea, one thing of communism, of course, we know is that its foundation is in uh, cultural Marxism, or excuse me, Marxism and cultural Marxism, but but I'm 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 digressing anyway. Well, uh, not so much. That's where we get into book nine here, and he really starts to describe a tyrant, and how he described a tyrant was uh, first that they would seize power by promising to the people uh, many of the ideas we now associate with communism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be uh, uh, lack of private property, uh, equal shares of everything for all the people. Uh, and uh, different ideas associated like that. He basically promised the people communism mm-hmm. and uh, used that to seize power and then just maintain the power for himself. Right, and that's how communism works, guys. Don't vote for Bernie Sanders. Yeah, so uh, he then describes how the tyrant would uh, then seem to have, although he had all that power, would have a poor quality of life because he would constantly be living in fear of revenge would be taken against him by those who he had wronged. And he uses this idea of the tyrant that we finally get to to show how he believes that living justly is more beneficial than living unjustly because the just man will have a happier life and not have to live in fear of revenge by becoming a tyrant. 
Right. So, so now that, that's an interesting concept because he really is getting into the idea of justice eventually or morality eventually is actually tying it to the idea of well-being for the person. And the problem with that idea of, of tying it to well-being is what do you do with somebody who's a sadist? And, and those are the questions that, that really come up. Uh, when you're looking at this is that uh, objectivity, uh, when it comes to an objective justice and objective morality, has to be rooted in a moral arbiter, one who can actually do that, but who it's not just um, uh, a moral arbiter going in, in arbitrarily making what's right and what's wrong, but it must be tied to a moral arbiter who inherently is right or inherently is good. Uh, Sir William Blackstone does quite a bit of good work on this idea of talking about how the, the in order to have the foundation for law, we must have somebody, a, a being who is omnipotent, who is uh, by definition uh, good, and who is by definition all wise, knowing uh, what could come up, and that does describe God. And of course, the God of the Bible, the Judeo-Christian Bible, we, we in order to truly have a moral system, an objective morality, an objective law, uh, we must have that. And so uh, that's, that's something that's very important to understand. And this is why what Plato ends up anchoring everything into is a, uh, it, it's a fluid foundation instead of a solid foundation. And this is really where the, the big um, differences come between uh, biblical philosophy and Plato's philosophy. Yes, so... Uh, again, he did not have that objective truth to ground it into, but uh, after nine chapters here, he finally came to a definition of justice. He finally came to a conclusion on uh, whether he believed it was beneficial for someone to be just. And uh, lastly, in book 10, he kind of, now that he has a foundation and uh, everything set up for his perfect state, he kind of looks at what the future of that state uh, would entail a little bit. So, in book 10, he starts with the idea that he's going to banish all artists. Now, <laughs> Told you he didn't like art. <laughs> yeah, so we finally come full circle to that. Uh, his idea behind banishing these artists is that uh, the uh, perfect work that should be done by a person, especially philosophers, is to seek to understand the objective truth behind everything, that ideal... Uh, version of everything in the world of forms and that artists get in the way of that they don't seek to imitate or understand the truths they seek to uh, make interpretations of what's around them in the world of these imperfections or create their own reality exactly uh, he since they are not uh, in the sense of finding the truth but and in fact making false truths according to him he thought that they were useless to a society which is interesting because, I mean, you think about the argument that was against the philosophers that he saw uh, come against him, that people thought that philosophers were useless and evil. He's actually turning that around and saying that artists are um, useless and evil. <laughs> Just kind of an interesting point. But not only the artists, but he also wanted to banish the poets. Now, I've, I've got a little poetry here for you. Roses are red, coffee is black, you touch my cup, I'll give you a whack. I don't think it's quite that kind of poetry oh, that we're okay. talking about. <laughs> I'm not sure how he'd feel about that. Regardless of whether or not he thought it was corrupting, I don't think he would very much like that poem in general. 
Yeah, most people don't like my poems. Especially since he probably wouldn't know what coffee is. Yeah. <laughs> but So he wanted to banish poets on the idea that uh, their works really go against rational thinking, that poetry, the poetry at the time, like of Homer, would actually be against justice, as he would consider it, mm-hmm. because it would seek to uh, create people that are overly passionate and emotional. It would seek to almost uh, get people's passionate selves to overpower that rational self that he believed in. Right, and it's it's interesting because this is also almost a, to a degree, a foundation for humanism. Not not the foundation for humanism, but a foundation for humanism, uh, or maybe a pillar for humanism. And looking at that idea of an atheistic worldview, um, it it's not that, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this when we look at other philosophers. But it's not that they completely hate Christianity because they simply. Um, disagree with it, but it's uh, the idea of, and it's not that they don't necessarily, even some of them see a value in the Bible uh, and in the the value of stories and in the the value of good moral teachings is what some of them might say. But then the problem is, is that they think that it goes and it feeds the irrational side of humans uh, as what Plato would be asking or or saying and and talking about here. Now, I'm I'm not making a case for them. I'm just trying to explain how they think. And so to a degree, it's almost a um, a pillar for humanism, which is interesting here. Yes. So uh, now that we see his ideas to banish artists and poets from his society, uh, he starts to kind of get into his a few of his ideas of the afterlife. And the biggest thing that he takes away from it is uh, the immortality of the human soul. Which that's where maybe it's not a foundation for humanism. <laughs> it, yes, it, it, it's said that all Western philosophy is footnotes to Plato. Mm-hmm. Whether it's uh, seeking to uphold his ideas or to challenge them, uh, a lot of the ideas viewed in Western philosophy have their roots in Plato. Right. But uh, getting back on with the immortality of the soul... Uh, he looked around at at the world around him, and he saw how uh, good things tended to preserve uh, objects in the world and how evil things tended to corrode them. And he looked at how that would apply to the soul. And good, as far as the soul, he considered was virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, upholding those virtues that it talked about earlier, the wisdom, courage, temperance, justice... And that the lack of those, or acting against those, uh, he defined as vice. But he made the observation that no amount of vice that you do destroys that soul. Okay. It, it may corrupt it, it may uh, work against it, it may make it evil, but it does not destroy it. And so he came to the conclusion that because that the soul is not destroyed by any amount of vice, that it must be immortal. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, obviously, that is a view that is also uh, shared in the Bible. We do view the soul as immortal. Right. That I wouldn't argue it the same way that he does, but I do believe we come to the same conclusion on that. Yeah. Yep. Now, now it's interesting here because uh, to kind of tie back to Plato, if you if if you guys want to want to follow this thread of what he's saying of justice and looking at this, because this is the ultimate conclusion of justice. 
um, that he talks about. And the problem is, just like we've said at the beginning, there is no anchor. There is no anchor to, um, to to really give him a solid foundation for this idea of justice. And here, this is where it's totally seen. He's trying to anchor it ultimately in the idea of the well-being of a person, but he recognizes, uh, because he's not a dummy, that um, you can't look at the individual, uh, you can't look at the person as an individual basis because uh, the well-being for one person, I mean, the well-being of a, a tyrant, so to say, uh, though he makes an argument that that's not the well-being and then once again, the just life is is better because then you're not always looking over your shoulder, but you look at the idea of violating other people's rights uh, is actually something that might be good for the well-being of the individual. And so he doesn't put it in the individual. He ties it into, he anchors it into the society. Now, once again, the problem is, is that he's not really looking to a moral arbiter. He, other than this, this idea, this abstract, uh, not abstract, but this idea of forms. And the problem is, is when you come to this, uh, these conclusions is that it's still free flowing uh, because it comes back to the idea of, well, who said so? There is no moral authority there is no um, cohesive authority or, or uh, um, uh, cohesive is not the right word. There, there is no uh, real authority or ultimate authority uh, in, in he can't answer that question. And uh, once again, it comes back to the Bible teaches that there is an authority and that authority is God himself in the beginning, God. We see that he is the one who defines morality, not because he's arbitrarily picking it, but because he is inherently good. Yes. And uh, just some final thoughts here on uh, Plato's Republic. A lot of the ideas that we've seen in it, I think, are a great testament to the idea of general revelation. Mm -hmm. uh, for those that don't know, would you mind uh, uh, giving a brief definition on what that is? Yes, yeah, so you have uh, general revelation and special revelation. Now, I'll first describe special revelation because it, I think it helps um, put into perspective what general revelation is. Uh, special revelation is the, the word of God. We think of Jesus Christ also as a special revelation, uh, but it gives the specifics of how to be saved is, is in the, the big idea here. Uh, but then there is general revelation, and that is the, ar the argument of the created world. Um, and it's the idea of creation is general revelation. And so it reveals to us that there is a God. In, in looking at Plato here, it revealed uh, to Plato that there is objective justice, uh, that there is justice in the world, and eventually uh, the idea that we should live justly. Uh, the problem is, is that it doesn't actually give enough specifics to actually truly define and give an ultimate truth of what that justice is, of what that morality is. And so though it, it, I think this is really probably as far as you can take general revelation is what Plato took. Perhaps there's a few that get a slightly closer on thinking of that, but really the idea of special revelation is then where we define what justice, what morality truly are, and of course the way of salvation what it truly is, but general revelation is that idea of creation. We can see that there is a God around us, that there is uh, a standard for living, but the problem is, is that we can't truly put our finger on what is that standard, who is that God, by just looking at general revelation. And I think another thing that he kind of gets to in the idea of general revelation is back to his world of forms idea. Now, uh, he recognizes that everything that we see in the world around us is an imperfect version of something that was supposed to be perfect. And uh, 
to me, I see that as him almost using ration and thinking to kind of get to the idea of the fall. I, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we know that everything in the garden was perfect, that uh, we were in perfect relationship with God, and uh, sin entered the world and it corrupted everything. It created imperfect. It imperfected the world. And I think his idea of uh, recognizing that everything that is around us is imperfect kind of is, again, almost as close as you can get to that idea of the garden in the fall without having that special revelation. Right. And and so this is just kind of me shooting off the hip here because this thought just processed uh, or came to my mind. It, it probably hasn't processed yet. Uh, <laughs> is the idea of... General revelation gives us, it answers the question of what to a degree, but it can never answer the question as to why. Um, and you look at with Plato, just as you're pointing out with forms, he, he could answer the question of, of what. You, you know, the idea of, yeah, we, we did. You can see what is around us. We, there, there, there must be something that's perfect. This is a corrupted world. But it can't answer why. Uh, and he doesn't answer why. He doesn't quite, I mean, well, he, he, his answer was that, that the gods split man in half and things like that. Um, <laughs> but instead of going and looking at the idea of sin and in in the idea that sin entered the world and therefore the world is cursed, he, he can't really get to those details or to that grasping of real, ultimate truth. Right. Uh, so uh, do you have any final thoughts then? Um, no. Yeah, I think we've, uh, definitely not everything that can be covered, but I think we've, uh, done a little bit more than just a summary of the Republic. So, uh, I believe next time we will be looking at Aristotle. Is that right? I think so. Right. Well, no, no pun intended with a, you know, a philosophy podcast by saying I think so. But, uh... Thank you for listening to the What is Truth podcast. I am your philosopher, Travis Webb. And I'm Pastor Sam. Keep thinking.